Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can make better products that your customers actually love. This episode is sponsored by the Rapid Product Master Experience, the RPM Experience, which is the fastest way for product VPs to help their product managers become higher performing. Go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see how it can help you. Today, we're talking about change. Now, the work that we do, the very nature of our work as product managers and leaders creates change. We change existing products to make them more valuable for our customers and our organization in turn. And we also create completely new products. And in the process, change is occurring really at many levels, also impacting our organization as well. And consequently, the work that we do as product people demands that we have some competency around change. And to help us learn how to better manage change in our product roles, Brendan Baker is joining us. He has helped organizations across several industries navigate change created by large transformation projects. So he can certainly help us as well. He's also the managing director of the firm Valuable Change Co. and the author of the book, Valuable Change, What You Need to Know to Ensure Your Change Pays Off. And I appreciate his personal mission statement, which is, Help change leaders drive real value. Something we very much care about is real value. As a reminder, if you want a detailed written summary of anything we talk about, including a one-page action guide to help you immediately put into action the key takeaways from our discussion, you just simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 382. Brendan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So we have a few miles between us. I'm here in Colorado in the U.S., and you're in Australia. We made the time difference work, and so far the internet is holding up for us as well. I'm very curious, how did you come about being the guy that helps organizations with change? You have to go all the way back to almost my childhood. In fact, it's funny, just the other day I was reading, listening to Peter Drucker's 1985, Entrepreneurship and Innovation or innovation and entrepreneurship, whichever way it is. And he states in there that entrepreneurship is all about monitoring and responding to change. Now, it, that I found that a particularly interesting statement because if you had gone back in time and talked to eight-year-old me and you asked eight-year-old me, Brendan, what do you want to be when you grow up? The answer I would have given you is entrepreneur. I had no idea how to pronounce the word. I stumbled my way through it, but that was the answer. And I blame Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad for that. I still do. Yes, that was the answer. So that was always the the intention was always how do I how do I do this? How do I get into this business world, this mythical, almost elusive business world? And I had parents that weren't in that world. I had my mum was an assistant principal, and my dad was initially in sales, and, and then took on a trade, and. So it just wasn't part of my household. It was elusive. It was interesting. And I felt drawn to it. In the naivety of my teenage years, I you know, finished up high school, finished up university and looked at what would be next. And there was what I, something I did know is that I didn't want to do BAU. I didn't know what BAU probably was, but in my mind, that seemed like doing the same thing every day. And I could think of nothing worse. I don't know what this stands for. What is BAU? Oh, BAU. Oh, is this new? Have I, this have is I, new. So business as usual. Ah, thank you. Business as, business as usual. Yes. Yes. So that whole idea of doing the same thing every day, that, there was, that scared me. And so I was like, what can I do? And I found myself in project management. And 
that was where I started to learn the game. That's where I started to really learn this. And initially I was supporting projects, but I begged and begged, give me a project, give me something that I can cut my teeth on. And I was given one, a small one, and I made every mistake under the sun. And nevertheless, I delivered it, got it over the line. It was a process improvement project. And so then I was given a bigger project and then I asked for a bigger one and I kept pursuing. And and you know, basically the projects, the, the, the shifts got bigger, larger, more responsibility, got to the point where I was leading restructures, transformations, all those really big, fun things. And then I made a shift into consulting. And I saw consulting, it was under a few other people's banners, but what I saw that as the next natural step because I could maximize the help that I was offering, maximize the impact. I could essentially help multiple clients at once. But through all of that, there was a pattern I started to see. And through my entire career, across almost all of the changes, there was a pattern that I started to see. And the pattern was that so often it was the change leadership that made the difference in whether the change was successful or not. And yet those change leaders were essentially abandoned by the industry. There is, there is project management, there is benefits management, there's stakeholder management, there's you know, product management, and there's, there is textbooks that go deep into those areas. And there are certifications and, and you can get very narrow and very deep. But when you look at change leadership, it's just assumed that everyone can do it. It's just assumed that, look, if you're an executive or if you're, you've, if you've got being given that responsibility, you can do it. And what I found is that they don't always can, that they can't always do. And it's not from a lack of skills or capability. It's just a lack of support and a lack of knowledge. And so what they end up defaulting to and what change leaders tend to default to is how long is this going to take and how much is it going to cost me? And they just run their change based on those two metrics. And ultimately that doesn't lead to a change that pays off. It leads to a change that is on potentially on time and on budget, but it doesn't ultimately achieve the value that we're looking for there. And so I founded the Valuable Change Co to provide that support, to change that conversation, but to do it simply and to do it without adding unnecessary complexity. Uh, you, you mentioned in, in the intro there, my, my mission is to help change leaders drive real value. My secondary mission is to fight unnecessary complexity. And it's a two-prong attack because change leaders don't have the, they don't have the time or, or the energy, to be honest, to, to get deep and to get narrow and to get across all of the, the many different fields and all the many different ways that you can change. So what Valuable Change Co, what I'm all about is what are the key essences of change leadership and what are some key simple metrics or questions that we can ask and at the right times to, to really maximize the value of what we're trying to achieve here. Excellent. Thank you for the background. The uh, path from project management to change specialist makes sense here. My background involved project management as well. That was part of my path to product work and developing products. Obviously, any project is bringing about some nature of change. And if we're doing a transformational project, very large natures of change. So I, for, from your book, Valuable Change, the framework there and you know, some of those you know, powerful questions that uh, you just alluded to, I want to get into how we can apply this to some of our work and I think I'll just start with the biggest scale problem that uh, we're likely to encounter you know, as, as product people here. And that's when our organization is the one in general going against us. So let me run through an example. So let's say that we're a company that is in the business of printing checks. 
And so we, we have made our money over the decades printing checks for businesses. And we start to recognize we're not writing too many checks anymore. And wonder how long it will be until businesses aren't writing checks. We feel secure at the moment because all the accounting systems are embedded. They rely on this check process. And we don't see that changing anytime soon, right? It's not like PayPal is integrated into accounting systems at a level that would disrupt them and the businesses we serve. But, you know, we think about it a little bit more and, gosh, we haven't written too many checks in, I don't know, five years. Yeah. Sooner or later, this is going to catch up to our customers that are businesses, too. And we go about creating a solution for this. And we come up with this really cool solution that creates a check, which is actually like an email. So we can do checks in a digital system now, and it doesn't disrupt any of the accounting systems our customers have and just really fits right into what they're doing. And this is a huge success for us. And yet we find, although our customers like it, that our employees that have spent much of their career uh, with us learning the details of what goes into printing checks, making checks, customizing checks for different businesses, feel threatened by this new digital capability, right? We've digitized the our key product here. And this is an example. This happens to be a rather specific one. But in general, when we are doing something that is in any way disrupting our business or cannibalizing previous projects, we encounter this. So I want to come up with that specific one of saying, hey, in a sense here, we're disrupting our bread and butter business, but we expect that business to go away. How do we deal with this change mm. and create the people, help the people in the organization become our supporters as opposed to our resistors? I love that. I absolutely love that. Can I ask you a question in that? Sure. With the with this disruption, are you anticipating that the those I guess the employees, the staff that are involved in the current printing processes and, and whatnot, that they would eventually shift on, or would you are you anticipating a reskilling with that shift to core business? If listeners want to look into this, that actually is a real company. I'm just you know reserving a few details. <laughs> their, their culture Fair is enough. very supportive of the employees. And it's rather, it's a large company, but it's rather a family environment in the sense that employees have worked there for a long time uh, on average. And they would certainly be looking to reskill as possible and help people have different roles. And the company is wanting to expand in other ways to help businesses as well, help their customers, knowing that, you know, we're not going to be using paper checks forever. Yes, yes. See, and, and that's a useful distinction because really what you're narrowing down there is, do I actually need to bring these people on the journey with me or am I planning to cut and let go? And if cut and let go, then the truth is that you don't have to put as much effort in because that the intention is cut and let go and help the support through that process and whatnot. But the intention here and the assumption we're running on is that we're looking to retain and we're looking to shift as opposed to completely cut off. And so we then start to look at change leadership. And when you and I talked so about this, would have this been a really short discussion earlier. then if I said it was a cut and let go approach. <laughs> I'm glad I chose the right one. It, 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 it would have been. <laughs> it would have. Now, when you and I were chatting earlier through our early emails, you, you did mention that that this was actually leading to the level a level of resistance that was creating assassination attempts on the, on the product. Is, yeah. that, that's what and we're talking about here in terms of that and, level of yeah. And to broaden this, so for everyone listening. If you haven't encountered this yet in your career, you likely will if you continue developing products. The resistance can't, if we're disrupting some nature of our core business or, or cannibalizing an existing product, 
there may very well be factors that are creating resistance that is it's a stone wall in front of us that might even get to the level of maybe some kind of perhaps not sabotage going out of their way to kill off this new product. The first thing that I would say in this space is resistance is really what that is. It's an indication that the value equation is imbalanced for these people. And I'll add a little bit more detail into that one. But first of all, the resistance is one of a self-protective fear. They're fearful It's and that they're looking to protect the status quo. And that's one thing that you need to completely understand. It's probably no surprise to anyone listening to this either. That when you create change is hard, but what we all tend to do, especially as the ones leading or catalyzing the change is we all tend to underestimate the impact and the pain that is involved with the change for everyone else that isn't us. We're already bought in. We get it. We, we see that the, we see the rewards far more than the pain. And so we're, we're on board, but what we do tend to do is then self project that forward and go, I don't understand what's the problem. And so there's a useful metric here and, it, and it's based on uh, a scientific study that was done in Ghent University in Belgium. And essentially there were a bunch of researchers who they were working in behavioral science and they were looking at the pain response, the humans, re basically the humans response to pain. And prior to this study, the rhetoric had been that we humans will do everything we can to avoid being in pain. Sounds logical. We don't like pain. And so we're going to try to avoid it. But these researchers challenged that notion. And they said, perhaps there's actually another part of the equation that's being ignored. And so what they did is they got two groups of students. The first group of students, which we'll call the poor souls, they hooked them up to uh, a, a machine, which essentially zapped them every time they answered a correct answer. They gave them, they gave gave them quizzes, simple one plus one equals two, spell this word, that kind of thing. And they zapped them every time they had a, uh, a correct answer. Needless to say, that group didn't answer all that many of those questions. That was the baseline. And that proved that existing theory of, yeah, we don't like pain. Then they had a second group. And we'll call this group the well-remunerated poor souls because they then attached the second group to that same machine, but they added in a couple other features. First of all, they added in a point counter. Every correct answer racked up your points. And the more points you received, the greater your payout after the study. It was directly connected to the, the basically the funds, the, the payout at the end. And again, probably no surprise here, anyone that's been around any humans will, know, will be able to guess that second group answered far more questions. And it's Look, money is a factor in there, but there were a few others in there. The, the point counter gamified the idea of getting zapped. It gamified the idea of enduring through the pain. And in fact, if you had multiple friends, especially students that were doing this at the same time, there is no way they weren't competing on that. Oh, I got 40. Oh, what'd you get? 50. Oh, that kind of thing is absolutely at play. And so you're stacking these rewards and the, the end hypothesis that ended up being proved there was that we humans don't just avoid pain. It's not a blanket rule. We avoid pain unless there's a good enough reason to endure it. Mm. And so that's what we need to be thinking about as change leaders is we are inflicting pain on others. We are creating a hard situation. So what we need to be thinking through is how do we restack and rebalance the value equation? Now, the value equation is 
reward minus pain equals decision. That's it. And what you want to be doing is increasing the reward and minimizing the pain and doing what you can to move past your own bias in terms of, oh, that doesn't seem that hard. And so there's a nice little mental metric there with any pain that you list down, just mentally double it because you're likely already bought in. So mentally double that, maybe half the amount of rewards that you're anticipating there and, and then ask yourself the question, would you still be on board with this? And if you're not, keep working at it. Increase the reward, decrease the pain. So look, that's the broader theory on this. When we start to apply that to this situation, what we get is you essentially have a group of people that perhaps this was a surprise for them. And I'm making a few assumptions here, but perhaps this was a surprise for them. And so you've gone, look, we're going to be different now and you're going to have to reskill and you're going to have to do this. Pain, 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 pain. But the reward for us is as an, as an organization, we won't collapse. We'll have these new revenue streams. We'll be ahead of the market or whatever the case is. But there's a difference in the rewards. The discussion's different. You're essentially asking them, take on personal pain so that the organization can benefit. And what we need to be looking at is how can we balance that can we create opportunities for personal reward? And can we find ways to reduce their personal pain? Simple things like involving them earlier in the discussions. Hell, even have a value equation discussion with them up front. Bring them in much earlier. And But basically, it's thinking through in those two levers in terms of maximizing the reward and minimizing the pain. That's the first essence here. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week, product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. Okay, so before we go on to the next one then, this first one, thinking about that pain and reward level, it is easy to consider the reward to the organization. And in my mind, you know, I, as the innovator, I translate that into the, the pragmatic reward to the employees is, you know, if we don't do this, we're not going to exist as an organization. All of our jobs will be gone if this doesn't work out. But that doesn't seem to be a very powerful personal reward. I think there is this very much an attitude of let's wait and see. And if we try to have the discussions earlier, even before the product is successful in the market, that's part of it. It's like, well, we don't even know if it's going to be successful or not. So let's not get people spun up around, around this issue in the first place. So that's the challenge. Mm -hmm. And then it just doesn't feel as, even though I think it might as the innovator, right? It doesn't feel as impactful as I would expect it to be like, I, you know, I'm helping you save your job because we're going to keep this organization sustainable and moving into the future. We need to make that more personal somehow. We, we do. And, and the other thing to keep in mind there is that pain in five years 
is less impactful than pain in six months. There, There is that immediacy factor that we need to keep in mind. So you're asking for pain in six months. You're essentially asking them to invest in, in one way. Invest pain now so that you don't have pain later. But it sounds like exercise, right? No, no pain until no gain. And <laughs> right. <laughs> And yet, how good are we all? How good are most of us at retaining a consistent exercise uh, routine? We're all probably not quite as good there as, as we all wish. And that's because there is that immediacy factor and there's that priority mm-hmm. factor. And so, what you want to be doing there is, yeah, absolutely building that story and you want that buy in. And, and I think we will, I'll talk about the ripples of change in a tick because I think that'll be a useful frame to think through this in terms of how do we actually think about change and how do we start to think through the buy-in and and the key factors we need to have in that space. There is also the other fact in there that you might just need to increase, sorry, increase the pain for the five years and make that more evident, make that scarier, but even more so decrease the pain in the immediate term. And it's really about managing managing the expectations, sure, and not getting them too rolled up because you're not sure if the thing's going to succeed, but you, you also want them to feel supported. Because what their pain is coming from a place of fear. And what you want to be doing is addressing that fear almost quite directly. And there's multiple ways of doing that. The, the peer support, there's the openness, there's transparency, there's trying to involve them in the successes and the failures. It's building them into reflection. It's building empathy that there's a number of tactics in that space. Can you give us one that is specific? Yeah, yeah. And when I, I went through, in a large organization, I was, we were going through a rather massive transformation and we did some of these small group exercises that personally left me feeling just abused. <laughs> this, this is for show and not actually dealing with anyone's yeah. feelings about why we're re- resisting this change. So an example of a tactic that might have hope of working would be great to hear. Yeah. So what you want to avoid is building a black box, black box style. We, we change everything up here and then just dump it out. I've seen, and to be honest, I've also earlier in the career, I've been in the black box and I've been outside of the black box. I've been on both sides of the fence there, seen it from all views. That's one of the biggest way to start to hamstring your change immediately is to have this black box style. We're just going to make all the decisions without you and then just dump it on. What the alternative there, but there is the flip side of that where you don't want to overburden people who already have existing jobs and you don't want to go, look, we want you in 400 workshops over the next three months, which I've also seen. And the biggest risk possible here is, you mentioned in terms of this idea of waiting it out. And I've seen that a number of times as well. In fact, I've been, I've got a few government clients and there is a a tendency at the moment towards privatization of government functions. But it had been a discussion for 20, 30 years. And so you have a lot of these old school style government employees that have been there 30, 40 years. And they go, oh, look, we've heard this talk tons of times before. This will be the same missile blow over, except this time it wasn't. And it was privatized and it was separated out and they did need to change. So there's a few factors and there's a number of risks. And the truth is that there is no silver bullet here and it's never going to be perfect. And as a change leader, you can't, Assume you're going to aim for perfection. And so what I tend to advise there is you need to be looking at, you need to be looking at several key principles and looking to embed the principles in and have them front of mind. Number one, it's keep that value equation front of mind. You are inflicting pain. So how can you help them through that? And don't see it as something that you're just lobbing over the fence or look, why aren't they just turning up and getting the job done? That's what we're paying them to do, right? That's not conducive. 
And it's having an empathetic view in the first place. The second element there is being really clear on your, what I call your change core. And this is that the first ripple area that, that I typically talk about. So there's three ripples uh, that a change works through. And yet it's the first one that this core area that often undermines our change. And the three questions in there essentially that, that form your core are why are we doing this? How will we prove success? And what exactly are we doing? And answering them in that order. I have a sneaking suspicion that there might be a few product managers who are guilty of finding the flashy new idea and starting with the what and then figuring out, oh, hey, we've got this really cool thing we've got. Maybe we need to find a why that we want to. I certainly see that a lot in the transformation space, in in the IT space, in process improvement space where it's, oh, look, flashy thing. Oh, look, there's we've, we've got a new solution. Let's find a reason to implement it. And... That's a dangerous way to look at it because what you're immediately doing is building in unnecessary scope. And what we want to be doing is starting with why, understanding what success looks like here and how we plan to prove the why, not prove success against our delivery, but prove that we've actually achieved the value that we're looking for. And then ultimately, then deciding what we're going to do. And when you build that core clearly, that's how you start to communicate with everyone across the organization. And it's those discussions that you involve them in. You don't involve them in what color should the carpets be or what color should the button be or anything like that. That's you involve the right people in that stage, you know, UX or whatnot. But the core elements, you need to be deciding them up front and you need to be having the conversations around those. And so that's when you bring them in the room and you say, look, this is where we're anticipating this is going to impact you. But is our understanding of the why correct here? And validate it and get that cohesion on the why and on what, okay, and if we achieve that why, what would the world look like? How would we actually know that we've achieved it? And get that cohesion on there. And it's not a difficult exercise to do. I, With clients, I often throw it on a whiteboard, three columns, why, proof, and what, and just draw boxes in and link them up. It's quite quite an easy thing to do, and yet... You can bring people into the discussion so early using that. And then all of a sudden, you've minimized some of the resistance because they understand the why. They're understanding their place in the rewards. Their hope is a bit higher. And so coming out of that, it'd be e- it's easier for you to, to motivate them because mm-hmm. hope precedes energy. And if you, you can't motivate someone that doesn't have internal hope for where they, they see themselves in the future as part of the, the future state. So you need to be getting that core correct. And then it ripples through. And I'm not going to go into too much detail in terms of the ripples, but, but I'll talk them through 10 second, 15 second overview here where we essentially you get the core right. That's your first ripple. The next ripple out is what I call inside your change. And that's the people that are actively involved with delivering it. Now, something that a lot of change leaders often overlook is change is hard on the people delivering it, not just the people impacted by it. And you need to be monitoring the momentum within the change as well as outside it and monitoring the resistance within it because there, there will be this natural drawback. When you're pushing through the resistance, it's creating friction and friction erodes energy and friction erodes hope. So you need to be actively stimulating momentum in that space. And finally, the third ripple out there is outside your change. And that's the people that are impacted. And that's when we're talking about value equation. And that's when we're talking about connection. And how do we build those peer support networks and, and whatnot in that space? So if you're thinking through as a change leader in terms of these three ripples, you really want to be prioritizing that first ripple, then the second, then the third, and then keeping all three plates spinning in the air. And that's really how you drive change. 
and drive value from your change. As you were talking through what that looks like, right, the the core and dealing with uh, why are we doing this and trying to get, a, as you said, a cohesion among the people in response to this and how we'll prove out the success, what we'll do. I heard through that a, a lot of, of the need to be empathetic and treat the people involved like real humans and not certainly just cogs in the ma- machine here that is going. And that suggests some potential change in the change leader as well. Mm. My dissertation chair many years ago has done some research in this area and looked at organizations that went through really large transformations. And I remember Clark America, which is a standout, the CEO at the time was having trouble with the executive team to get on board with transforming the organization. So his immediate reports, the executives of the company. And he finally said, okay, let's just try this for a year. And if it doesn't work, We'll go back to what we know is not is already not working for us. So we, we, we know the current state isn't <laughs> yes. working. We need to do something different. Mm. But in that whole process, he, the CEO, talked about his personal transformation and leading change, how he changed individually too. Because this is a very human, mm-hmm. if we're not just cutting and letting go, this is a very human sort of process to bring people along. And I heard that coming through as you talk about the core a little bit. Thoughts on that? Oh, no, I think you're absolutely spot on. And it's something that I'm very emphatic on, to, to be honest, is leading with empathy. As, because as you said, it, it is, it's a very human thing. And what Valuable Change is all about and what I'm all about is it's not about the mechanics of the project management. I've been there, done that. You've been there, done that, right? We, we've, you and I have both designed schedules and run risk meetings and all of those fun things. That's the mechanics uh, and it's not about the stakeholder maps and it's not about all of the tools and templates and everything that sit underneath it. What it is about is the people. And what it is about is driving actual value and creating the change and bring them along the journey with you. And I mean, bringing them along the journey is cliched to, to infinity now, but it really is that about driving with that empathy. And that's something that, as you said, that does create that, that does necessitate that need for personal reflection, that that personal growth, uh, because you are actively looking outside yourself and you should be asking, how is this valuable for, and it may not be valuable for everyone, but how do I minimize the pain and how do I maximize the reward here? And how do I actually drive this through in, in a way that is going to be effective, not just a hammer and right. slamming it through because the hammer slams Sometimes they work, and when you're cutting all of the the when you're cutting all the rough bits of the wood off, then sure that the hammer slam works. But every other time, if you want those parts of the wood, and if you want to bring them in and shape them into the new sculpture, then the hammer slam is not the way forward. The way forward is discussions, empathy, involvement. Storytelling is a huge element in that aspect. It's creating that hope before you create that energy, and doing so, and monitoring both of those elements through through the entire change. Very good. Lots of good insights. One takeaway that I want listeners to pay attention to is just recognizing the potential for this. Anytime that we are improving a product, and certainly anytime we're creating a new product that may be cannibalizing something that we do already as an organization, there's the potential for this. And I'm underscoring that, Brendan, just because I've talked to so many product managers who were later surprised about the efforts in the organization to maybe kill off the project. This is actually successful. Why is there this effort going on to say this? we should spin this out? This isn't something we should be doing or just kill it entirely because we get blindsided some of the time. So recognizing that this can happen 
the part of your core there, the first, the ripple, right? Hmm. Talking about why is there a need for this, right? Why is there a need for this product in the first place? And helping people understand how this ties into the bigger picture is really important for us. Okay, this is helpful. We could go into other aspects of your framework, but for sake of time, we will point people back to your book. We'll tell them more about how to get that in just a moment. We always love a good innovation quote around here. What do you have for us? And what does that one mean to you? My wife put on the fridge a few months ago. She got it somehow, put it on the fridge. And I, she said, I've put that there for you. It reminds me of you. And I read it and it is absolutely spot on. I then Googled who the quote is by. And it is by one of the first writers, one of the first female writers of erotica. So that's an interesting little lens on this. But that said, the quote is brilliant. It is life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. And that's something that I've personally found over the last X years as you push forward, as you live as fearlessly as you possibly can, you do see that expansion. And when you're stuck in that fear, that's when you're getting that contraction. And so when, if you're living fearlessly, if you're being bold and you're showing up, you are going to see that expansion. And the last year I've spoken to and connected to people all over the world. Since publishing the book, it's been, it's been a whirlwind, to be honest. And that's because I took the risk and I'm showing up and, and I'm being courageous. And so that quote, life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. That really spoke to me and I hope it speaks to your listeners. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. The the courage part stands out to me. You, you writing a book is something new. Uh, us developing products is something new. Anytime we do something new, we're going a little bit outside our existing comfort zone. And we're stepping into a bit of an unknown area. Well, what if I write this book and no one ever cares? Or, or worse, cr- critics, people I appreciate say that it's just rubbish. We're putting ourselves out there a little bit. And that does expand and it requires courage. But it's worth it. We, we learn in the process. And I appreciate you sharing that quote. I like it very much. How can people find out about the work that you are doing and change? Find out more about the book and other resources that you have. So I'm at valuablechange.com. So you can get me there. I often say that I'm just an email away and I honestly am just an email away. Any of your listeners, feel free to, to reach out. Any questions, any thoughts that come through this, any parts where you say, Brendan, I like the idea, but you didn't go into an update. Any of that, hit me up with an email. I do have international clients, so we can always make that work. But otherwise, the book is Valuable Change. It is Amazon, Google Books, everywhere, uh, paperback, hardcover, audiobook, and ebook. So, however you want to consume it, I've made it available. And finally, I have a weekly uh, newsletter, the the Change Leader Weekly. So, I would encourage your listeners to jump on that if you want to hear from me on a weekly basis. Excellent. And is the newsletter also something we can subscribe to at valuablechange.com? It is, yes. And also LinkedIn as well. I, I replicated over as a LinkedIn newsletter as well. So, however you want to consume, it's there. We will make sure that the links are in the show notes, including the link to your LinkedIn profile. So that is easy to find for people as well. And valuablechange.com is the place to learn more about all that. Brendan, I thank you so much for being part of our podcast and helping us think a little more deeply about the change that we create. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And for listeners, just as a reminder, if you do want to find that one page action guide to put into action the key points that Brendan shared with us, and also the written show notes of everything we talked about, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 382. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. 
By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.